Let's pray together. Father, we do pray once again that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. I always introduce William Tyndale to my students as a hero of our faith. If you've never heard of William Tyndale, you, you need to hear about him because he's famous for being the first person ever to produce a print translation of the New Testament into English. But what makes him a hero is not merely his, his work as an academic and as, as a scholar, but the sufferings that he submitted himself to in order to make it happen. And it happened in, in, in 1526, the first edition of this New Testament came out. But over a century before um, Tyndale, there was another guy named John Wycliffe, who was actually the first person to produce a complete translation of the Bible into English. And um, it, it, was, it, was an, it was an amazing achievement that happened. This Catholic priest, John Wycliffe, came out with this translation. But it had two drawbacks to it. Uh, number one... The, uh, the translation was made from Latin and not from the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. And then number two, the lang it, was tr it was translated before there was a printing press. And so the, the translation couldn't be mass produced. It had to be hand copied in order to be distributed. So it was an amazing work and, and you know, it was better than a kick in the pants, um, but, but, but it still could be better, right? And, and this is where Tyndale comes along. Tyndale comes, comes along over a, a century later, this guy knows Greek and Hebrew. And it's just come out uh, to the world, new editions, or, or first print editions of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. And he's got these things, and he knows how to translate them. So he makes it almost his only thing in life to translate the Word of God into English. He had been swept up and convinced by the uh, Reformation that was sweeping Europe. He was influenced by Martin Luther. And more than anything, he wanted to put the Word of God into the hands of Englishmen. He wanted them to be able to read the Bible for themselves. The more he read, the more he became convinced of the principles of the, of the Reformation. And the more he wanted other people to know what he was learning. The only problem was, was that after John Wycliffe had done his translation... The Roman Catholic Church made it against the law to either translate or read the Bible in your own native tongue. So it was against the law, and eventually in England it became a capital offense to do this. You couldn't translate or read the Bible in your own native tongue, or you could be put to death. They were so serious about it, they made this law after Wycliffe was already dead. They dug up his bones and burned him at the stake. Wycliffe got off easy. He was dead when they did that to him. There are a lot of folks who came along later who were alive when they did this to them. And so Tyndale, this was the, the, the atmosphere that Tyndale went into. He wanted to translate this Bible. He tried to get permission to do it from King Henry VIII. Henry said no. So Tyndale fled to Europe. He went to Germany to do this work, this great work of translating the Bible into English. This guy was on the run. A lot of the time. He ended up doing a lot of his translation work while he was in prison. 
Uh, there, was, there was one story when he was in prison where he, he, he was without basic necessities. He was asking for clothes so that he could be warm, something to put on his head, and he asked for his Hebrew Bible, his Hebrew dictionary, and his Hebrew grammar. He finished the New Testament, but he was not finished with the Old. And he would die before he finished the Old. So it was unbelievable, that this, the resolve of, of this man. Eventually, he was betrayed by a friend. And he was handed over to, um, to enemies. He was imprisoned and he was sentenced to death. And after a long, harsh imprisonment, the time of his execution finally came. He was still in Germany, kidnapped by Roman Catholic interests. And it said, as they were tying him to the pole, that his last words were, Lord, open the, the king of England's eyes. And in those last words, he summed up basically what his whole life was about. It wasn't about escaping the executioner. It wasn't about anger or bitterness or resentment for his suffering. It was about one thing, open the eyes of the king of England, not so that he could be freed, but so that he would give permission for the word of God to be translated. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And then they put him on that post and they strangled him to death and they burned him at the stake. It's often the case that a person's last words are their most important words. What I mean is that when a person knows that their end is near, they say what they believe is the most needful thing to be said. That was certainly true with Tyndale. I think it was true with Paul when he wrote 2 Timothy. I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. How many of you have ever read 2 Timothy knowing that this book is essentially... The Apostle Paul's last will and testament. Paul wrote this book while he was in prison in Rome, where he knew that he was soon to be executed. He says in chapter 4 and verses 6 through 7, The time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul's been in many scrapes before in which he, he, he knew he was in deep trouble. But he knows in writing this letter that this really is the end. He knows that he's writing to Timothy what may be his last words to Timothy. So the question is, what is he going to say in this book? What are his last recording, recorded words to humanity? The words he wrote to Timothy. Pastor Tommy Nelson calls... 2 Timothy, the Flanders fields of the New Testament. I wonder how many of you are familiar with the, the poem in Flanders fields. It's a poem written by um, a Canadian officer who fought during World War I. His name was John McRae. And, and McRae was a part of this horrific battle in Flanders, the in northern part of Belgium in 1915. And during that battle, it was just carnage everywhere. And one of his friends was actually killed in this battle. And, and McRae penned these lines, the lines of this poem, from the perspective of the dead who lay buried in Flanders' field. And it goes like this. 
In Flanders' fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. And so here in this poem, you have the fallen heroes of the British Empire calling forth from the dead, saying, take up our quarrel with the foe. You from failing hands, we throw the torch. You who are alive, you take up our cause and you carry it forward and you go into the fight. And that's what Paul is doing in 2 Timothy. It's the Flanders fields of the New Testament. He is calling on Timothy to take up his quarrel with the foes of the faith. And he's passing the torch of the faith on to Timothy. And in truth, he's not just passing it to Timothy, he's passing it to us. And the question is, will we take it? Will we take up our quarrel with the foe? So, so 2 Timothy is Paul's last will and testament before he meets the executioner's sword. What's he going to say here? Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on the first seven verses of this book. We're going to look at the beginning of the last words of Paul. And these verses are going to be the, really the foundation for everything else that follows in this book. And I want you to notice three themes from the beginning of these last words of Paul. You're going to see an expression of the apostles' authority, authority, an expression of the apostles' thanksgiving, and an expression of the apostles' command. That's basically the three things you see in these first seven verses. But the first thing is, is, is an apostle's authority in the first two verses. Everybody look at verse 1. He says, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins this letter really like he begins a lot of his other letters. He just begins with this assertion of authority, and that authority is bound up with the office of apostle. So I want you to think with me a few minutes about what it means that Paul is calling himself an apostle. You know, even this word apostle could be translated in a generic sense as, as a messenger or as a delegate for another person. And um, it, it can mean that in a generic sense, but it certainly means more than that here. Uh, we know that Paul has said in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This was an official office within the church. And so the, the word apostle appears in the Gospels um, to give uh, to designate this special group of disciples who were sent out by Jesus to proclaim Jesus's message. They were the 12 men that you know of. Jesus appointed them to preach the gospel of the kingdom. You can read about in Matthew 10 and Mark 3 and in Luke 6. They were specially designated by Jesus to do this. And in the upper room discourse of Paul of, of John's gospel, 
After Judas, the one who had betrayed Jesus, had already left, Jesus tells these men of his plans for them after his departure. He promises to send the Holy Spirit to them, to teach them, and to bring to their minds everything that Jesus taught them, and to guide them into all truth, which means Jesus promised he was going to give them a special ability to pass on revelation from God to the church. Jesus is is promising a special divine enablement for these men to be authoritative representatives of Jesus' teaching and of God's truth. After Jesus um, is dead and buried and he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. And after he's ascended, the Holy Spirit comes. And as this is happening, the apostles seek to fill the slot that is vacated by the betrayer Judas. And in that discussion in Acts 1, there are two primary qualifications for the apostles. Number one, they had to have been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And number two, they had to have been commissioned directly by Jesus himself to preach the gospel. You can look at this in Acts 1.21. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And they ultimately chose a guy named Matthias to fill that 12th slot. But later in the book of Acts, Jesus reappears and commissions specifically Saul of Tarsus to be an apostle. Saul's on his way to persecute Christians in Damascus. Saul becomes an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And he's commissioned directly by Jesus to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, Jesus says in chapter 9 and verse 15. So in in 2 Timothy verse 1, when Paul calls himself an apostle, he's not having delusions of grandeur when he says this. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus because Jesus made him an apostle. He saw Jesus with his own eyes and Jesus says, you are my chosen interest. You are speaking to me before the Gentiles. Sometimes you're going to hear people say, you know, I want to be a red-letter Christian. By which they mean I'm going to listen to Jesus and recognize the authority of Jesus and the red letters of the Bible. I don't have to listen to curmudgeons like Paul. Well, guess what? That is fundamentally a self-refuting proposition. The red letters of Acts 9.15, Jesus says that he appoints Paul to be his authoritative spokesman. If you're going to follow the red letters, you don't get to gainsay Jesus and who he chooses to speak for him. Jesus says, you listen to Paul. Then you listen to Paul. You don't pick and choose from the words of Scripture, the colors you like best. They're all coming from the Spirit of Jesus. Paul speaks with the authority of Jesus. Do you believe that? Jesus chooses his spokesman, not me or you or anyone else. So whatever it is that Paul tells us in this letter, we can be assured that this comes with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. But notice that he also says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That means that when the Son of God charged Paul to be an apostle, the second person of the Trinity was marching in lockstep with the will of the first person of the Trinity, the Father. 
Paul's authority is grounded in the purposes of God, announced by the ministrations of Jesus, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is a Trinitarian authority in Paul's ministry. The last phrase in verse 1 tells us what the object and intention of Paul's apostleship is. It says, it's according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Paul is to be an authoritative witness of what was promised in the Old Testament. There would be a messianic salvation that would issue forth in eternal life and in resurrection for God's people. And now there is this man, the firstborn from among the dead, and Paul has seen him. And he is an apostle according to that promise of life which comes through Christ Jesus. So he's an apostle of the gospel. You see that? It has to do with the message of the gospel. So in verse 2, he says this. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus, but now he's saying who he's writing to. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And so verse, verse 2 is addressing the letter to Timothy, the young man that we are introduced to in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. He's the son of a Jewish woman and of a Gentile father. Nevertheless, Timothy was a faithful servant of Christ when Paul found him. And so Paul enlists Timothy in his service. And that's why Paul here in 2 Timothy calls him my beloved child. Timothy became Paul's disciple. I don't think he came to faith under Paul's preaching. I do think that Paul took him under his wing and showed him the ropes of gospel ministry, of an apostolic ministry. And Timothy was with Paul, and Paul becomes this spiritual father to him. And, and Timothy went all over the Roman world assisting Paul in preaching the gospel. And eventually Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to lead and to pastor that church. And so what you find out is as this letter goes on is that Paul loves Timothy. He has a warm affection for Timothy. And, and, and as Paul's awaiting the executioner's sword to come down on him, he's writing to Timothy and he's saying, please come to me before this happens. He, he says in chapter 4, verse 9, please come to me as soon as possible. And so calling him his beloved child or his beloved son, it, it's, a, it's a term of endearment from Paul, from this beat-up apostle who's about to give his, this one last instruction to his young protege. So Paul begins this letter with what's a declaration of his own authority and a word of tender concern for Timothy. He says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as you, as you look at those first verses, it's really just, it's kind of a standard introduction. It's been Christianized. But really it calls us to ask ourselves this question. Are you ready to hear from Paul? Timothy's facing some challenges in his situation, some false teachers. And he begins by saying, Paul begins by telling him who he is that's writing him. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to hear from Paul? Is your heart at attention when you realize that you're about to read the last will and testament of a man of God that Jesus himself appointed to speak to you? 
You know why we need Paul to remind us of his authority? Because we're facing the very same things that Timothy was facing. Challenges to God's authority every day in our lives. Paul is going to command Timothy to hold fast to the faithful word in the face of false teachers who oppose it. And he is telling us to do the same thing. But your willingness to do that is going to depend entirely upon who you recognize as your authority. And if you can't get under this authority, you're not going to stand in the face of those challenges. So before you're able to fight the good fight of faith that God is calling you to, you're going to have to settle in your own heart now what your authority is going to be. Is it going to be the apostolic words of this book? Or is it going to be the spirit of the age whispering in your ear that you would be so much happier if you would just get your head out of that backward old book and into the modern world? That's the message you're getting every day is that there are other authorities that are better than this one and that will be better for you if you listen to them than if you listen to this one. And some of you are already flirting with those whispers from the spirit of the age. And you're wondering whether God's word is really the best thing for you and sufficient for you and all the difficulties that you're facing. This text is reminding you that grace, mercy, and peace come from the Lord Jesus and it's communicated to you. Those graces come to you through the words of Jesus' apostle. And so the question is, will we listen? Will you put yourself under that authority? And so Paul begins here in these first two verses with an assertion of authority. But he also begins in verses 3 through 5 with an expression of thanksgiving. Look at verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. And so what you have here in verses 3, 4, and 5 is, is verse 3, Paul is going to tell us to whom he's directing his thankfulness. Verse 4 tells us what Paul longs for as he's thanking God. And verse 5 tells us the reason that he thanks God. So, so really in three verses, he's about to unfold the who, the what, and the why of his thanksgiving. That's what's going on here. And so in verse 3, he tells us the who. Paul thanks God. Which is remarkable in itself when you think about what Paul's condition is as he's writing this. He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison, which isn't like what you and I think of prison. They didn't give you three squares a day in cable TV. That's not how prison worked in the ancient world. They didn't necessarily provide you with basic necessities. Prisoners were often dependent on people's kindness or family members or other people to come in and give them that stuff. That's why Paul later asks Timothy, when you come bring me my cloak, I'm cold. And yet in this condition of confinement and deprivation and abandonment by many of his friends, Paul is still thanking God. Paul is doing what he told the Ephesians to do in Ephesians 5.20 where he said that being filled with the Holy Spirit means always giving thanks for all things, all things, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Do you give thanks like that in all things? Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Listen, the giving of thanks is not a throwaway, a throwaway line here from Paul. Giving thanks is the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. And it is the means by which you will glorify God when you are suffering. There is nothing more powerful than a person who is beleaguered and suffering, who nevertheless, out of humility, gives thanks to God. For his good gifts. That kind of thing doesn't come just naturally out of the flesh. That thing only comes from the spirit. It's going to be the means by which you glorify God. When you say, even if I have everything taken from me, I, I still have God and he's enough for me. That's what Thanksgiving says. And that's why Paul speaks of God the way he does in this verse. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. His prison cell, cell may have removed him from polite society, but it did not remove him from serving God. He was serving God in prison in the most desperate of conditions. His friends may have deserted him, but God hadn't deserted him. And his thanksgiving bears witness to that. And so Paul says that he's continuing to serve God with a clear conscience, which means he's walking faithfully with the Lord. He's not falling away from Christ because he's been cast aside into the prison cell. In fact, he says he's serving God the way my forefathers did, which means this kind of faithfulness with a clear conscience in suffering has a pedigree in the Old Testament. Literally, he's saying he's serving God from his forefathers. It's Paul's way of saying that he has received from his forefathers a pattern and example of faithfulness. I think this is a remarkable statement because it gives us a glimpse into the way that Paul thinks about his Jewish forebears in the faith. Paul says he's serving God just like they did, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and Isaiah, and all the rest. He's serving God like they did. But you could hear somebody objecting. Well, well, but I thought those were Jews who didn't know about Jesus. They weren't Christians. How can he be serving like they did? They weren't. They didn't know Jesus. The reason he can say that is because Paul rightly believed that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the promises made to his forefathers. Promises they were trusting in. And what his forefathers trusted in anticipation, Paul is now simply trusting in fulfillment. Christianity and Judaism, rightly understood, are not two different religions. They are two stages of one religion with an unfolding revelation. They are what the seed is to the flower what the foundation is to the building, what the boy is to the man. We need to remember this because I think there are many Christians who seem to be forgetting this. 
How many of you have heard about this professor at Wheaton College who uh, recently has gotten into some hot water for saying that Christians and Muslims worship the same God? She said this, and it's, it's kind of a controversy right now, and um, it's caused a nationwide controversy, even among those who are calling themselves evangelical. Some Christians saying that we do worship the same God as Muslims, others saying that we don't worship the same God as Muslims. And there was one theologian named Miroslav Wolf who weighed in in December in the Washington Post. He's a theologian from Yale. And um, he, he wrote in the Washington Post, of course we worship the same God as, as the Muslims. If you deny that, the, that we worship the same gods as the, uh, God as the Muslims, then you'll have to say the same thing about the Jews. Because the Jews don't believe in Jesus as Messiah or that God is a trinity either. So if it's a different God from the Muslims, then it's a different God from the Jews. Are you really going to claim that the Jews worship a different God? So this theologian weighs in in the Washington Post. Well, no, we don't claim that we worship a different God from the Jews. And the main reason is because the main issue is not really what a person thinks, but what the scriptures reveal. The Quran does not reveal a God who is the father of Jesus. It does not reveal a God who is a trinity. The Old Testament does reveal that Messiah is coming and it does give us indications that God is a trinity. And if you don't see that in the Old Testament, I don't think you're reading it as a Christian. You can be very sure that the God of the Old Testament looks very different from that of the Quran. We are not talking about two different religions when we talk about Christianity and Judaism as it's revealed in the scriptures. And that's why Paul can say that he worships God just like his forefathers did, right? They weren't worshiping a different God. It's the same God. So the who that Paul thinks is God, the what that he experiences while thanking God is in verse 4. He says, he longs to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Paul wanted to see Timothy again. That's what verse 4 says. And it's not hard to imagine why. His longing is made even more poignant by the fact that he remembers the last time that he saw Timothy. He says there, even as I recall your tears. Paul is remembering his last farewell to Timothy. He left Timothy weeping. Can you imagine what Timothy's tears at that last farewell must have meant to Paul as he's sitting there languishing in prison? Demas has left him. Crescens has left him. Titus has moved on. Everyone has either deserted him or gone on to do something else except for Luke. And yet Paul remembers that there was one guy one man who was not eager to leave him but could only part from him in tears. That meant the world to Paul as he was wasting in that prison. And he wanted to see his beloved child again. And so the who and the what of Paul's thanksgiving are verses 3 and 4, but now he gives us the why. Verse 5. Why is he thankful to God? For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. 
and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul is thankful to God for what God has done in Timothy. He's thankful because he knows that Timothy's faith is the genuine article. It is a faith in Christ that has been tested by suffering and that has proven itself in faithfulness to Paul. Timothy's faithfulness to Paul. But it's interesting that Paul also links the, genuine, the genuineness of Timothy's faith to the ones who taught the faith to him. His grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Paul knew these women, apparently. They were the real deal. And that gave him confidence that, that Timothy was the real deal too. They did not hand to Timothy a false gospel. They handed him the true gospel. They didn't hand to Timothy a hypocritical way of life, but a real way of following Christ. It's a good place just to stop and say to the women of the congregation, in particular the mamas and the grandmamas, have you ever stopped to think about the singularly powerful impact that a Christian life can have on your children? Same thing for grandmamas. Even if your husband isn't a Christian, Timothy's daddy was not a Christian, but he had a mama and a grandmama who were. And they lived faithfully before God. Have you imagined the mark that you can make on your child like no one else can make? And God can use you to raise up in your own house oaks of righteousness so strong that an apostle like Paul might want to lean on them and be renewed by them. Have you imagined the singular impact that you have, mamas and grandmamas? Paul is later, he's going to say something remarkable in this book. He says uh, in chapter 3 and verse 14, to Timothy, in the face of all these godless men who are going off into depravity and false teaching, he says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Why? He's going to say something about the character of Scripture as a solid basis for continuing in the things you have learned. But the first thing he says is, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Timothy, you continue in the things that you have learned because your mama and grandmama were good women. That ought to give you something to aspire to. Every parent. That one day if everything around your child fails, they can look back and they can remember the love and the faithfulness of their mamas and go, I'm going to follow who she followed. Paul says that's a good thing. Knowing from whom you have learned it. From childhood you've learned the sacred writings from these women. So Paul speaks of his authority. Paul speaks of his thanksgiving. He is thankful. The beginning of his last word includes thankfulness for Timothy's authentic faith. But the last thing is a command. The apostles' authority, the apostles' thanksgiving, verses 6 through 7, the apostles' command. Look at verse 6. 
And for this reason, I remind you, the NASB says, to kindle afresh the gift of God. I like the ESV. It says, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Paul begins with the reason for the command that he's about to give. He says, for this reason, which means because I'm so certain that this genuine faith is in you, you need to kindle afresh. You need to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The gift of God is not a reference merely to the reception of the Spirit that everybody receives at salvation. I don't think it's just that. It's the gift that Timothy received with the laying on of hands, which is a reference to, I, I believe, Timothy's ordination which was also mentioned in 1 Timothy in chapter 4 and verse 14. You remember that? Paul told them, don't neglect the spiritual gift in you, which was bestowed upon you through the prophetic utterance and with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. And now Paul's calling to attention his own personal part in the laying on of hands that happened with the other elders. So what's happening there? He's saying, don't forget that. When the elders lay hands on a man, they are not magically investing that man with powers. That's not, what hap that's not what's happening with the laying on of hands. Nor are they filling him with the Spirit. The laying on of hands is a public recognition of giftedness based on what the Holy Spirit has already done in the person that they're laying hands on. He's saying, kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of, of hands. So what that means is the laying on of hands indicates that a man doesn't become a pastor just because he wants to. You don't get to become a pastor because a seminary hands you a piece of paper. Recognizing your own giftedness does not qualify you to be a pastor over God's people. If you're the only one that sees it. <laughs> There has to be a recognition by the church led by the elders who are willing to lay hands on you and say the calling of God is on your life. We are setting you apart for this work. That's what's happening with the laying on of hands. If you are called to the ministry, you are not going to be the only one who sees that calling. Everybody around you, at least some people, need to be able to see it too. Your giftedness or not, will become evident to you, and if not to you, it will become evident to others. And if you haven't received the kind of, of affirmation and encouragement from your home church, your brothers and sisters in this church, you need to try to figure out why that is. It might be because you're not gifted for the work. Or it might be because you need to kindle afresh the gift that is in you. You can't give yourself the gift of pastoring and leading, but you can let those things languish and atrophy, the abilities that go into that work. My son Denny, is, um, his vision is not what's, what it's supposed to be in his left eye right now. He can't see well because his right eye is, is taking over, and it's doing things and making his, the connections between his brain and his left eye aren't, aren't going, going right. And so what we're doing over time, if we don't address this, it's going to take a serious intervention to fix this. And so what we've been doing, I guess, for about the last year now is he's got to wear a patch over his right eye, the dominant eye, so that the left eye will start to work, will be stirred up 
to see and to do the job that it ought to be doing. So we're patching his eye for two hours a day. It's been happening for a year. It's been a good, a good sport about this. We've been doing this because we're trying to stimulate his left eye to do what it already has the ability to do but isn't doing. I think that's what Paul's talking about here. He's telling Timothy to do the things he is already gifted to do but that he needs to grow stronger in. What does it mean to kindle afresh the gift? I think it means that you, you need to give yourself to the means that the Holy Spirit works through to make gospel ministry powerful. That's what it means. You need to give yourself to the Bible. You need to learn the Bible. You need to preach the Bible. And to preach the Bible doesn't mean you have to have a Sunday school class that, that's yours or that you have to be up in this pulpit. There are opportunities all around you for you to sharpen your axe and to get to chopping. You need to give yourself to prayer and to congregational life. You need to put yourself in a place to be fruitful and things will happen. Why do you have to kindle afresh this gift? Well, look at verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. The ESV says, a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of discipline. I think the spirit that he's talking about here, he hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and discipline. The spirit that he's talking about here, I think is the Holy Spirit. What kind of spirit do you have in you? He's not giving you a spirit of timidity. It's not a spirit of fear, which is a word that really indicates cowardice, I think. And cowardice is not merely the experience of fear. There's lots of people who experience fear who really aren't cowards at heart. A coward is a person who lacks the courage to act against his fears in the face of danger, difficulty, opposition, or pain. That's what a coward is. God has not given us a spirit that meets opposition and danger in, the, in, the, in gospel ministry and that just sort of slinks away after it, it beats that opposition. That's not, that's not what you do. I played football when I was in, in high school, and I can remember um, I played tight end. Teams back then didn't throw the ball much. But every now and again, they would throw the ball. And one of the worst hits I ever took was this one, I wanted them to throw the ball to me, and they sent me in a route over the middle. And I reached up like this. And I was about to bring that ball in, and I got clocked. You know what happens to receivers after they get clocked over the middle? The next time they go out, they don't quite uh, open themselves up as much. That's what happens. This can happen in ministry. You get clocked a couple of times, and you get timid and fearful and cowardly and you become unwilling to take your lumps Paul says God hasn't given us that kind of a spirit you go over the middle full on every time and you go out in a blaze of glory if you have to and if you have to die then you have to die but you go when gospel preaching meets opposition, the temptation is always going to be to back away from the conflict. 
We can't do that because we are not animated by that kind of spirit. And by the way, that goes for all of us in here. All of us are called to the work of evangelism. And you don't get to slink away from this because of opposition that you might meet. Or because people might not think well of you or it might cost you something. Be strategic, be wise, but be bold. God hasn't given you a spirit of cowardice. And so preachers and gospel proclaimers have to kindle afresh the gift, not cowering in fear, but standing forth in boldness and love with the word of truth. That's what we got to do. And you know what? God does surprising things when you do that. I was a sophomore in college the first time I ever delivered a sermon in church. I was probably like 19 or 20 years old. And the church that I attended in college, every year they had a college day. And they got college students to lead the service. And uh, college students would pray. One would lead the music. And, and, and for some odd reason, they picked me to deliver the sermon. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> no idea. I, re I had read my Bible, but I didn't really know how to study the Bible. I, I was pretty green all the way around. I, I certainly didn't know what it meant to preach a sermon, but I did it. I t my text was from Revelation chapter 2 um, on the letter to the church at Ephesus. My sermon notes were not, there were less sermon notes than they were like stage directions. <laughs> The note said things like, verse 3, elaborate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> verse 4, get loud. <laughs> I threw some brethrens in there. Uh, it, it, I preached for about 22 minutes before the thing was done. It was a miracle because I didn't even know how long to, how to prepare to know how long this thing would last. It could have lasted three minutes. But it went 22 minutes. Perfect. So I just went out there and, and did it. I think if I were to listen to that sermon today, I, in fact, I know if I listen to that sermon today, there'd be a lot that I would disagree with, strongly disagree with. <laughs> but still somehow in that moment, even in my naivete, it, it kind of worked. Even though I was nervous, even though I didn't know what I was doing, I got up there and just let her rip. My mom and dad drove up uh, three hours. They, they knew I was preaching. They came to hear me. And uh, you'd expect your parents to say, you know, they're going to be happy whatever you do. You could lay an egg, and they're like, fantastic. <laughs> but, but the thing I remember most about this after it was over was my mom came up to me. Her reaction, she didn't have a smile on her face. It wasn't this big jovial thing. It was just kind of a grave expression on her face. And she said, when you started speaking, I felt myself going under authority. I was 19, and I thought, really? <laughs> you know, uh, that's weird and neat, you know. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. Somehow things just kind of worked that day. And I got some affirmation from, from my, not just my parents, but from other folks in the church. And I think I said some probably some pretty naive and boneheaded things. What would have happened if I just decided that since things went kind of okay that day, if I just decided that day, all the preparation that I needed for preaching, I already had. 
What would have happened if, if I'd have done that? What would have happened is that, that whatever little flicker there was inside of me, it would have gone out. That's what would have happened. Instead, what came next was more years of college in which I gave myself to reading my Bible in English and trying to learn it. Years of seminary studying the languages, theology, and history. Serving as an intern at my church during the summers. Sleeping on bunk beds with stinky high school kids. And a hundred other things. Kindling afresh the flame. And even now, I can't rest on my laurels. I, I've got to kindle afresh or this little thing's going to go out and die. You don't get to coast. All of you guys out here who are, past, who are aspiring to the ministry, if you're going to do this, you've got to give yourself to this work. That means you've got to give yourself to the Bible. And you've got to hang in there when the going gets tough, and you've got to hang in there when the going gets tedious. You've got to be prepared to make the candle burn when the wind is blowing hard against it. Because those winds will come, and you can't lay off until the bad weather goes away. So Paul is giving us an indication of his authority, of his thanksgiving, and he's giving a command. The command is to kindle afresh this flame. And the word that is coming to us from Paul is like that word from Flanders Fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. Don't let that torch drop. You kindle it afresh. And you watch and see what God will do with you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would help us. Those who are aspiring to pastoral ministry and those who are just aspiring to be fruitful Christians, I pray that you would kindle afresh the gift that you've given each person in this room. And that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, remove fear and cowardice and fill them with a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And that you would, through that gift, produce fruit. Lord, make our church fruitful. Make us powerful with the people we work with and the people that we encounter in our community. Surprise us. Help us to put all of our effort into the means of grace that you've given us, into the word of God and prayer, into this fellowship and life together. So, Father, we pray for you to do this, and we pray for you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.